0: Hello, Podcast Universe. It is Theology and Dialogue, a production of the students at the Villanova University Department of Theology and Religious Studies, and we're glad you're here with us. We have these good conversations all the time, and we want you to hear them. Uh, We're back with part two of the Hagiography and Religious Truth conversation with Drs. Menghe, Smith, and San Chirico. So... The topic is hagiography and religious truth. We got into hagiography and a little bit about the theories and, and sort of presuppositions that uh, each of the authors, or excuse me, each of the editors is bringing to the table here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe you uh, asked specifically, uh, either in last episode or this episode, uh, about the qualifier of religious right the I did of truth right oh yeah
1: yeah so. That, so that can kind of like for a lot of people you know it's especially in you know a a, a secular society, but putting religious in front of a word is kind of like putting square quotes, scare quotes around it. Um, exactly right, it, it kind of
0: makes it untrue, right? Exactly way, it's from the from the scientific perspective, something closer to
1: something. fantasy or fiction, or you know, it might be poetry or myth or something, but not something you can hang your hat on. Right,
0: um, and then on the other hand, too, uh, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of religious people don't like the term religious truth either, right? Sure, because it's truthful, capital <laughs> T. Precisely. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I think one of the really interesting insights that uh, that uh, all three of the uh, the scholars that we're interviewing today bring to the table is the way that religious truth actually functions uh, uh, differently than sort of scientific fact or something like that. The way that that uh, religion sort of opens up the world for people in ways that mm-hmm. other sorts of truth claims can't.
1: Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and at the same time, though, that there's um A a way in which religious truth uh, isn't just like squishy emotional stuff too, but it it, it too can be like detached and um, objective in its way. I mean, in some ways, as um, Dr. Smith uh, uh, pointed out, like in some ways like um, one of the precursors of scientific investigation was Mm -hmm. the way Mm -hmm. in which the Catholic Church investigated early saint stories to, to verify them.
0: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it was so fascinating to
1: hear sort of some of the some
0: of the roots of of this sort of uh, scientific method, uh some of the roots of this sort of mm-hmm. obsession with empirical verification mm-hmm. in hagiography itself, That's which right. is yeah. which is often now considered to be so uh, fantastical and 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 s- sort of superstitious and, and unable to be verified, right?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and actually the the first uh the first two essays that Open the book. Um, begin with with a discussion of how, uh, if you hear the word hagiography now at all, it's usually as a pejorative. Um, it's it's usually indicating some sort of account that's not to be taken at face value. And right.
0: Sort of sort of uh, trying to sand down the rough edges of something and try Hagi- trying to trying to present the most uh, exactly. the most flattering image of, right. of a person possible. Right. right Those exactly. are the hagiograf- hagiographical. Mm-hmm. Accounts, right?
1: right? I, I, exactly, and um,
0: and exaggerating, right? The the maybe holiness or exaggerating the mm-hmm. the um, good quality, the admirable qualities of a person, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. And so it's taken to be less than factual,
1: less than factual, and and maybe even um, you know less than uh, less than truly human, even mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. you know sort of exaggerating. Um, yeah, uh, uh, holiness and maybe miraculous abilities on the one hand and uh, getting rid of all the mucky, ugly stuff that we are all too frequently involved in, saints or no. Um, mm-hmm. And um, our our authors all, all kind of uh, show how, um, like what we take to be biographical now um you know, like uh, the, the sort of very scrupulous investigation of personal mm-hmm, details mm-hmm. and so forth. Well, that's a very modern and, um, in some ways, a very kind of limited and parochial way mm-hmm. of thinking of, uh, 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 of human life. And um, in in some ways, hagiography sort of opens up um, opens up uh, new dimensions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on how we understand human lives. Um, yeah.
0: So an interesting thing about this is you're all. All four of you uh, are converts to Eastern Christianity in some form or that another. right? correct.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, which I, I'll be honest. That that's one of the things that, that drew me to the book at, at, at the outset. Um, I was obviously curious. Um, and um, yeah, we we are indeed all all converts to to Eastern Christianity. I'm Byzantine Catholic myself. Our three co-editors are, are all are all Orthodox. Um, and I, I think um, one of the things that uh, Eastern Eastern Christian traditions uh, sort of bring to this discussion is. Um, there's really uh, an emphasis on, on preserving these uh, these stories out mm-hmm. of uh, out of Christian history, mm-hmm. um, some of which ring pretty strange to modern ears, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, which uh, I, as a convert, struggled with for mm-hmm. for, uh, for for some time. You know how to understand them, how to read them. One of the things that was so
0: interesting to me in this episode was how the sort of uh, encounters with holiness in their own lives they sort of at the end of the episode they sort of share some stories about their own sort of personal encounters with holiness and and somehow this sort of sparked an interest in their sort of uh research in, in hagiography and, right. and and um practices of holiness right
1: yeah 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 absolutely and i mean i i think um you know their their stories um so, uh, sort of make clear that um uh well it's it's, it's a, a theme in the book too that like you know ha- ha- hagiography isn't like a, it's not just a, sort of an, a, an abstract thing these these accounts out there uh, you know for for, for study or, or whatever they are they're explicitly intended um, you know for instruction of the faithful for um, for for conversion um, and that they uh, and, and so, yeah, I mean, these, these experiences of, of holiness are, um, uh, well, you know, they're, they're, they're real, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now mm-hmm. how, how we understand that reality, well, that's, you know, that, that the takes, some, of the book, takes right? some reflection. Yeah. But um, it's a, you know, it's a datum mm-hmm. of experience It's there and we've got to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of what Eastern Christianity, I think, brings to this and what all the... Um, all the co-editors make clear from their experiences too yeah
0: Mm -hmm. cool well we'll not waste any more time here let's get right into the interview um and thank you so much for conducting this that was Uh, really good it was my pleasure enjoyed it thank you for the opportunity yeah no this is going to be a good episode so i envy you all listening to it for the first time indeed enjoy
2: not just science that has, you know, the entire hold over the critical enterprise, or, you know, it's the only thing Mm. that practices distance, you know, that this has (coughs) been part of the religious tradition, at least Catholicism, from the beginning. And so to pathologize or at least say everybody is stupid <laughs> believes this stuff discounts the you know the complexity of the traditions themselves and the the different critical postures that are developed so carefully in catholic thought and in within hagiography itself Absolutely.
3: it's interesting you say the word postures because that's mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. use of a term mm-hmm. and, uh, as you say postures i think of the emic and the edict description, mm-hmm. you know, the insider's perspective and the outsider's perspective. Interesting. The, of course, we know that it's not always clear who's in and who's out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we are often Absolutely. outsiders to our own tradition. And the, yes. the most critical yes. interpretations happen when we are, quote unquote, ecstatic, standing outside, right? And not just inside. And there's a sort of a dialectical movement. A back and forth uh, that that takes place. Anyway, it's curious I'd use the word Uh, posture, uh right? Um, Because when I think about doing my ethnographic work, there's times when I'm very much outside. Mm. And other times, it is not clear. Mm -hmm. And what I like to talk about (laughs) uh, with my students uh, is the notion, I think I I did this in one class, Luke, is uh, relational identities. How that is constantly shifting. Yeah. Right. Based on religious identity, uh, national uh, identity, Absolutely. physical location, uh, et cetera. Definitely. Um, so there's always this. I think uh, a processual understanding of our interpretation is is really important. It's something I think a lot about these days mm-hmm.
1: with regard to that um, mm-hmm. relational I, I, identity. I, I was really I was interested in the, the, the relationship that you described between um, there was sort of like mutual hagiography going on between, yes, right. um, like the, you know, canonical Catholics, um, you know, the, the the priests and religious, and and the the Chris Bhaktas who are um, canonically non-Catholic. They're, they're they're not baptized, but they're devoted to Christ, um, and the, um, you know, the the proper Catholics um, just described in effusive terms like the sincerity and the devotion of the krispaktas. And, and the Bhaktas, for their part, looked on the, the, the priests and religious and, and looked uh, and um, you know, were deeply impressed by like their, their holiness, their set-apartness, mm-hmm. I think. And um, I, I was actually, I, I was interested in sort of the, like there's a reciprocal, mm-hmm. a, a reciprocity there, yes. but also like an asymmetry there. And I, I was wondering if you could comment yeah. on that.
3: Well, there's different asymmetries, uh, mm. absolutely. And, yeah. and that's one of the things... That in my work I'm trying to to continually trying to tease out this delicate negotiation that is taking place in this mm-hmm. ashram and its surrounding villages mm-hmm. of how the relationship is between these Catholic religious and these non baptized devotees of of Yesu, of Christ. Um, the asymmetries are greater still because mm-hmm. uh, these uh, the Catholic religious are, are usually um, highly literate. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are usually from South India, very often from uh, Kerala, a very elite uh, Indian Christians. Mm-hmm. If you know the lay of the land of Indian Christianity, um, so much of uh, sort of the the uh, intellectual largesse has often come from the south. Mm-hmm. That's where Christianity has been the longest, and yet now you have this. Um, well, what shall we call it? Is it a new form of Christianity? Dare we call it a kind of Hinduism? Well, this is challenging, speci- specifically in the age of, of Hindu nationalism. Uh, and um, on both sides, a guarding of borders, mm, which certainly. is increasingly a part of our world, uh, which uh, where religious elites are not uh, so inclined to let that be a porous border. Anyway, the, the asymmetries are multiple. The asymmetries of um, who can take communion and who can't. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, the educational asymmetries; uh, those two, but the mm-hmm. asymmetry also, uh, and here the Krishpak does, as Banarsis, as people of a particular mm-hmm. place, give them a kind of agency and advantage over the people who are mediating the tradition to them. Interestingly sure. enough, because one thing that is very clear from uh, from my work around uh, Benares and uh, in those Catholic circles is that they very much. Uh, feel alien mm. to that space, and here are people from the region who are taking what they are learning and, and running with it in a new way that we really can 't gainsay, and that yes. is both that 's hope inducing for Catholic religious, but it 's also frightening mm. as well there 's there's both of that at play anyway, I could <laughs> go on for a long time on those <laughs> things, but
1: I thought it was interesting too, like in the way that um... Your ethnography is, is sort of uh, sort of working, you know, in, in that that border of uh, orthodoxy and and uh, you know non non orthodoxy. Um, whereas it, it's it's interesting that you know a, a, a hagiography, um, as you know as described in, in, in many parts of in, in many essays in the book, um, I should say, um, is is used as a a guard. Uh, to orthodoxy like a a way to sort of cement uh, correct belief to cement communities weaving my way toward a question (laughs) somehow I think
2: (laughs) (laughs) that there's a there's something I think when we see hagiographies of the past Mm -hmm. unless they are these strange marginal lives that have been kind of sidelined for mm. a long time. We think of I'm them sorry. as sort of part of a deposit of tradition or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm speaking more of, mm-hmm. as a medieval. I, that's mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. I know. But mm-hmm. sure. sure. But um, and then things that are contemporary seem edgy. Actually, <laughs> like if mm-hmm. you if you saw a life written about somebody today, even if right. it was modeled on somebody from say 1450, we would right. it would feel weird and dangerous to mm-hmm. us. But right. As much as, and these, and lives were essential to fight heresy or were Mm -hmm. used that way, were written for that purpose to create saints, to shore up pilgrimage sites, to get Mm -hmm. money, to (laughs) Mm -hmm. make a community have pride, to, um, you know, divert devotion from people that church authorities maybe didn't want Mm -hmm. the folks to be venerating. But then these lives themselves are often, they so destabilize that as well. Abs- so right. I think that like right. what Carrie's seeing in these emergent hagiographies, mm-hmm. it, for- it, it reveals and you're in the midst of it. So it's mm-hmm. like right. this unstable situation mm-hmm. and everybody's not sure where they right. stand or what the posture should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it actually was like that a lot in the creation mm-hmm. of Vitae mm-hmm. that we now inherit and think are... Right. Oh, here's our inheritance, and this is it's standard. But they were very; it was a very contested move, a really political move, and often a dangerous move. Or, you know, like the first lives of Francis that the order ordered completely destroyed because they saw danger in them. Mm -hmm. That we still have, thankfully. We do have them. Mm -hmm. But so I, I. So it's just a funny dynamic that I think is, is always is. there, but I think the works themselves true. have the traces of that,
1: mm-hmm. like that dispute, that, or that. dispute, mm-hmm.
2: just because it's powerful, because it, mm-hmm. and it's, and so that power always makes the people in charge nervous. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Riga,
3: are you still there?
4: Yes, I just, I just gave a affirming chuckle to. <laughs> <Dave>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm all
2: about
1: making the people in power nervous <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and that's the like the the, the interesting thing in in, in these these hagiographies too like i mean they're as you said like they're they're being used you know, they, they can be used to shore up orthodoxy, but at the same time like these um you know these these abundant events are are inherently destabilizing just um by virtue of of, of what they are um and um, it's I I I think it's it, it, it's it's really interesting how um uh like to see like historically how you know it, you come from this you know, this very contested space and I think that there's certainly a tendency to think that like we're we're more stable now but um that that, that the past you know w- was stable or w- w- whichever but um no it's a, that there's always this contesting. Going on, um, well, of course, the the danger of that then, of course, is like this this relativism that mm-hmm. the, that comes up. Like, okay, well, you know, is defending orthodoxy then is like just a power move? It's somehow, you know, these correct versions, mm-hmm. quote unquote, uh, come about, and it's and um, you know, it's clear that that plays out differently too in Catholicism as opposed to like Eastern Orthodoxy, mm-hmm. Islam.
2: Mm-hmm. So, what I wrote about was this document, the Galassian Mm -hmm. Decree. Right. Um, I mentioned it. A 6th century document where there were just a lot of restrictions placed on what could be read in church in particular because the authorities (laughs) recognized early on. That what people are devoted to, actions will follow from what you are devoted to. You have a, you know, there are many, there are saints being made or venerated all the time and, um, communities falling in love with particular people or holding them up. But what was interesting at the end, it, it, so it placed some restrictions, but then it told people basically to really take the discretion about what was good or bad upon themselves, that that was their job, um. Right. Can I see the language? Absolutely. Scary. This, is this is the memory still I, I can hear it. you. Oh, me? you're still there? Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we're good. Okay. Uh,
4: I'm, I'm, I'm jotting down the little notes to my, the, the talking points that on, on this subject. So. Oh,
2: <laughs> 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 So they're trying to determine what books you can take up and what you can't take up, or books that can be received or not mm-hmm. received. And so they give a list of what is canonical just in terms of scripture, but then they also prohibited reading in liturgy, Mm -hmm. many martyrs tales because these were just, you know, people were writing them. It was, it was happening. The church is really trying to contain things. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they were also, what was so interesting about it though, is they were worried, not just whether or not the, uh, people who were being, who were becoming beloved were problematic. It was mm. an issue with accuracy, hmm. that the lives themselves or the martyrs' tales right. were inaccurate right. and that the author was not a virtuous person. <laughs> and so this is why Michel de Certeau, who looks back at the Galassian Decree and then at the later work of the Bolandists, um, who are right. still active, um, and he says... What you see there is that these principles that we associate with very modern historical critical methods of determining what is the most accurate version of a life or, you know, what really mm-hmm. happened or how can we verify that our source is reliable, you find in this clerical tradition. And the right. Bolandists were obsessed with this. Um, when they started collecting, like trying to just go through all of the hagiographical tradition, but they wanted to get rid of every accretion. So lives often just gain bits. Mm. Originality was understood by them to be, that's what accuracy was. Mm-hmm. We don't have that understanding anymore because we think of the layers as themselves incredibly revelatory. Right. So that's really a critical posture, mm-hmm. but it's, not, it, it's coming from within the Catholic church. And it's worried about people having accurate information. We can call it um, and a a text that is written in the right spirit because the Mm -hmm. writer was virtuous. Mm -hmm. Because those things that devotion is not something separate from using your brain. Essentially, (laughs) I don't know. You know, it's not. It's not something that you pull apart from understanding and discretion or discernment and so those things were always bound together in the tradition and he in fact will make the argument that then a lot of these methods that we think of as being part of the social sciences are clerical
4: as a as a little side note since the Bollandists were just mentioned mm-hmm. um, <laughs> they i originally brought the and and as as as, as rachel was just saying the um they're so active. I, they were the first people I went to with this book idea, okay. and not only did they reject it, but they rejected it with some of the <laughs> most, um, dismissive, oh uh, God. language that I can. Oh dear. Well, <laughs> it
2: was classic.
4: Wow. wow. I'm sure yeah. they're none too pleased. To be I didn't featured. know that. <laughs>
1: well. Yeah.
4: I, I, have a, I have a couple thoughts on the, the uh like this back and forth between like canonicality and, and mm. critique um, that I might add to Rachel's. Um, one is that I'm I, I myself am very sympathetic to the thesis that is, you know, shared by many uh, people out there, including Jeff Kreipel, that that almost I mean the, the radical way of putting it is all orthodoxy starts as heresy. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of inclined to, in that direction, but I'll qualify it here to say that, like, most Orthodox. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: say it um,
4: one
3: more time, but- please. <laughs> <laughs> He's
2: about to get fired. The,
4: but but if you just think about these, like, the, the ecumenical councils that are shared by both the Roman Catholic and, and Eastern Orthodox churches, <laughs> you know, I, I see a, when they come up with the term homoousios to, mm-hmm. to discuss the, or to describe the relationship. Uh, between the father and 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 the son those who were opposing it were actually the conservative
2: mm-hmm.
4: right the conservative uh-huh. that they 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 did not like they did not want this term because it was used by it showed up in the works of valentinus for example mm-hmm. another like gnostic group and uh-huh. so it uh, was seen as like absolutely not you move forward jump forward to uh chalcedon Chalcedon and its formula of Christ existing in two natures, divine and human, ran counter to St. Cyril of Alexandria's <laughs> definitive statements throughout his writings that Christ has one nature, right? So, again, the groups that, like, were pushing back were actually the ones being truer to the earlier language. You think about the icon controversy in the Nicaea II, right? Again... If you're going with the actual, like, like literalism, like images are forbidden in you know in Israelite religion, and so it's like, well, how are we doing this now? So each time these councils that determine orthodoxy are actually engaging in a certain overriding of a like a slavish attitude towards what has been previously understood as orthodox, and so if you if you take that same sort of thing you can start realizing that that canonicality itself is an always unfolding process um i i one area i I wrote another thing for kripal recently um on on lives of christian saints and i i picked a few different case studies but my final one because i went with people that are all like canonized first but then my final one the final section is entitled uh the curious case of Marguerite Perrette. <laughs> and in that, I, what I, Marguerite Perrette was, uh, a, a, better, uh, not a badwin a Beguine <laughs> mystic. <laughs> um, I made her a Muslim for a second. Right. No, she, she was a Beguine mystic and, and was burned at the stake for, for her writings. And, uh, And she has, like, this dramatic... I mean, the stories (laughs) of her death are, like, easily converted into, like, powerful martyr stories. Um, Flash forward 700 years, and everyone thought her book was lost, that she had been condemned for. Some some nuns find it, are like, this is amazing, like, mystical theology, well within the Catholic mystical tradition. They take it to, like... Goes all the way and gets the full approval of the Vatican, and is you know <laughs> is published, circulated, and only a, a couple de- decades after that does someone does a scholar finally discover oh this book is Perrette's book, so the <laughs> book she was burned for <laughs> is later able to be received by the same church as like this is saintliness, and so the thing I pose at the end is like why should we not understand her status as still open ended right mm. it's up to us and i think this is gonna echo something rachel was saying you know a moment ago like it's up it's up to us that are still part of the living like tradition of these sorts of things to actually be able to say like yeah it turns out and and it, you, you can't force it but the more people are keep reading her book and the more mm-hmm. it keeps getting assigned in theology classes and the more there are <laughs> People that are kind of devotees of Corette, That's how it'll change, yep. and that is how it how it always actually has worked mm-hmm. on some level.
3: Now I'm fascinated by that process and the and the small decisions here or there yeah. to put it in a syllabus, to have her read, for Rico to bring it up now. <laughs> you know, all the sort of interesting <laughs> ways that something is received or not received mm-hmm. fascinates me. Mm-hmm.
1: We've been talking, you know, largely um, like how this process played out in in the in the Catholic uh, tradition, in, in in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, and and uh, as well in in the Islamic tradition. There's not quite as um, like regimented uh, a process,
3: routinized or centralized. Yeah,
1: yeah, I, actually, centralized is a, a better mm-hmm. word. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I, I was wondering how those processes can be described too like how how um how you know saints lives become sort of accepted in um in the eastern orthodox and islamic traditions when there's not like sort of a you know any kind of central criteria and it's well it's messy obviously but
4: yeah i mean in in both cases um yeah I, i mean and i think you're definitely right to kind of group them together but the, the, friend of God in, in, uh, Sufism mm-hmm. and uh, also <clears throat> it went to find like it, you know, in Shiism as well. Um, that the process in which that happens is, is quite similar to how, um, it happens in Eastern Orthodoxy, mm-hmm. although, although not identical. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, in Orthodoxy, there's generally a sense of which, like, the person becomes locally venerated as a saint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People within the area of where the person lived and died, or maybe where their their grave is, um, almost maybe from day one already practice a devotion to them as like we know this was one of the holy ones, and it's a matter of if that if that catches on. Right. And if that grows and like the stories about that person spread to the other parts of the Orthodox world,
2: mm-hmm.
4: uh, then that's how it can eventually get into a calendar. Like it's celebrated like uh, regularly in the calendar, but often right. even then it might get celebrated first in one of the church's calendars. Mm-hmm. So Moscow might consecrate someone and make them a saint. There's actually an example of, um, Saint Raphael of Brooklyn. Um, Who's like the first American uh, orthodox saint, um, at least like born in in hmm. here, or like his whole career here and so forth
3: that 's Brooklyn, um, New York, just so our listeners are clear yeah Brooklyn
4: New york <laughs> um, and he, he he was he was of Arab descent hmm. and that 's uh, like affiliated with the Patriarchate of antioch. Well, the Russians in, in OCA and the Moscow and so forth, but the Russian jurisdiction, for state you know, sake of simplification, uh, they were the first to canonize them. And it embarrassed the Antiochians that the Russians beat them to this. So the Antiochians <laughs> then canonized them. And so in Orthodoxy, actually has two different feast states. Um, one according to the Russian canonization, and one according to the Antiochian, which is very so, orthodox.
3: It is very which is
4: the orthodox thing that yeah, because of like the greater like centralization in Roman Catholicism, would be like that's rather odd. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, in 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 in, uh, in Islam, in those in those uh, corners of Islam where the friends of God are, are venerated, it's even less um rigid and official than the orthodox processes and you know you don't have the same kind of liturgical calendars and so forth that are um, that are then worked into the structures of the mass or the liturgy you know the way they are in, in Christian circles and so forth because it, that they don't have those corollaries the same way in Islam
1: so if I picked up in, in, in a, a, a number of, of the essays that there was kind of that uh, a certain affinity in the process between um, between eastern orthodoxy and and, and islam which um, uh, kind of you know uh, is a challenge to our uh, again our, our sort of notions that um you know what 's approved should be centralized um, should, should be uniform in fact since uh, i i 'm on the subject of, of eastern orthodoxy it 's um it 's it's of interest to me that um, all all three of you are um, are, are Eastern Christian a- adherents, and I, I, I was wondering, like, how um, I, I don't know what's um, what, what effect that's sort of had, like, when um, you know, when, when your perspectives, like, in, in the way that you've gone about um, the research that that you did. Um...
2: Well, I before I did medieval studies, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time in Greece with, with nuns. And so I, this was not something conscious. It was just something I noticed. I did meet people I would call holy. And I think it was mm-hmm. the first time. It, I just was struck. Like, my body felt different mm-hmm. when I was in their presence. Um, people would tell me stories that sounded outrageous. But they were completely sane people mm-hmm. telling me these stories and it wasn't just you know their silly wishful thinking or something there was a uh, a gravitas to them and to their narrative that I loved and I really I think in my mind I thought that the Day of Saints was done if it Mm. had ever existed I wasn't sure I just hadn't really thought about it I guess (laughs) but I think that's that's yeah and I think that that's when Mm -hmm. I got interested in holiness because it was so beautiful to be in the presence of people like that but that kind of beauty can't i haven't seen it convey well except in devotional poetry i guess mm. it's the one place where you know you i feel like you get some of that feeling but that's my mushy answer kind of <laughs> <laughs>
4: So it's The answer that that Frank uh, Clooney in his afterward uh, wanted us to give all in the actual text yeah. of the uh, yeah book. yeah
3: <laughs>
4: yeah true exactly. confessions.
1: Okay,
3: <laughs> well, it's Jerry, time it's, it? it's time for you, and then I'll, 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 <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll bring it home, I guess. Go ahead, okay. um
4: I'd say you know I I similarly. Um, you know i came i was born into a roman catholic family mm-hmm. I'm, I'm of mexican uh, american descent mm-hmm. uh, um, i my family became evangelical protestants when i was fairly young in uh, early elementary school mm-hmm. and so i was raised in a kind of like environment of hostility between mm-hmm. uh the protestant wing of my family and the <laughs> catholic wing of my mm-hmm. and When I got uh, into college and really started questioning whether I wanted to be Christian at all and these sorts of things, um, there was kind of a happy accident by which I discovered uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. And as I started, um, you know, I visited a a couple churches and there was a at least just one priest that I came across um, and met. His name was Father Michael Trigg. And it was the first time, and kind of similar to what Rachel was talking about with the nuns, it was the first time I'd met a Christian that I said to myself, and I wasn't orthodox yet at this point, but I, was, I thought, whatever that guy's got, I want it. <laughs> you know, whatever is going on in this, like he just radiated peace and love and composure in a way that I had really not seen out of somebody. And I really had that sense. That whatever he's got, I want it. And it was through that that I kind of intuitively became to understand the power of the saint and the story that we tell about them, and the devotions and the, you know, and practices that build up around them. That that it's it fills that very same function. That instead of it being like this path you're just going on alone, these these. These people serve as, as pr- like a sort of proof, you know, that it, you know the way the way the the Hebrews in eleven, the, the Epistle to the Hebrews chapters eleven and twelve put it, right? These people, uh, you know, serve as, as the evidence that it can happen. And to me, that like coming to realize, like, no, that if if it's all in the end about personal transformation. Then this is an absolutely critical and essential point of, of a part of of what re, you know religions can actualize any human being uh and so for me that was the you know it's one of the things that why I have a kind of endless fascination with it and even further like you know I use record in the in my essay and and Ricœur, I think, has a great point about like how part of this. You know, you asked, you know, coming full circle again, you asked about the title, religious truth. Um, mm-hmm. Religious truth, I would say, is quite closely allied in Ricœur's mind and in mine with artistic truth.
0: Uh,
4: yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But they're also not identical, because because the religious takes what what art can give you, and. Brings it with a like a greater force and a greater ethical punch and a greater like imperative of sorts. Um, but even along these lines, I still think that, that the power, you know, is. Yeah, I, I'm currently planning on a, a shameless plug for something I say. <laughs> I um, I'm currently planning a, a a theology of pop culture book, um, sensitively titled "How Hip Hop and Harry Potter Saved My Life." Um, and then maybe in brackets, and can say yours too. But the point being that even these stories, which are like purely fictive, or like you know, or these like forms of music, would they still set up for you models that can be brought into being in in one of them like that you can actualize? It's very much what what uh, Joel Gruber's thing from Legend, to Flesh and Bone, mm-hmm. even is operating on, like the the thing that starts out as story actually becomes reality as it is imitated and embodied by others. That's why these things are so important to me.
3: Well, I guess it's my turn. I, um, <laughs> the interesting thing about me, so I'm a convert to orthodoxy, um, and I did have an encounter with a, a holy monk in New York City who had been tortured in Romania. Hmm where I had an, an experience uh, um, where I felt like he looked into me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very powerful. It was off-putting, even, mm-hmm. disturbing a bit, mm-hmm. and yet uh, um, attractive. Attractive. And I only I want to bring this up not just because of my personal history, but also to something that I try to um, bring out in my essay that I think is really important and that I don't want uh, Christianity and Christian notions of holiness to overdetermine how we are using the term in our book. OK. Mm. And one of the things I try to talk about is a nation of these these figures. Um, Sinister yogis is the book mm. by David White, right. one of uh, my former professors, is that yogis are can be quite scary. Uh, they can be off-putting. They could be for good or for ill. It's not always clear. So we we need to be careful as we make these comparative moves. But I did have this experience with holiness. Uh, It did seem attractive to me. It seemed to back up the claim that orthodoxy was making about itself. But I will also have, you know, interestingly enough, I had uh, one friend to my left and I had my future wife to my right. She did not have that same experience with him. Okay? So that also has to be taken into account. This is the kind of thing that gets left out of the story very often when we put it to paper. Okay. So um, one of the things that for me, my time in India actually opened <coughs> me up to, to orthodoxy. Okay? Uh, and because uh, at an early age, this is obviously not in the book, but I went to India when I was 22 years old. And if I was going to try to understand India, it became clear I'd have to understand it on its own terms and not Mm. on my own. Mm. And that sense of being able to be opened up to another place, I had to do the same thing when I first went to my first Orthodox liturgies. Like Rico, I was an evangelical Protestant. Like many, I was, I mean, it's such a cliche now. I was looking for a quote unquote ecclesial home. Okay, um, But it was the experience of India that made me open to the difference that I first saw. And <clears throat> um, if one is dealing honestly with orthodoxy, then one has to be open about the messiness of the orthodox tradition. <laughs> and I think that also leads to the messiness of reality. Indeed. <laughs> and I think one of the things that I think the book successfully shows is as much as we try to order it in our chapters that are <laughs> circumscribed and have a certain book length, then there's a messiness to it all.
1: Absolutely.
3: Uh, and so that's where I think the orthodoxy comes in for me in this particular <laughs> uh, particular book. Mm-hmm. This, Which we should also say is the brainchild of Rico. It's Rico's brainchild. It's Rico's brainchild. Yeah. We got into it because, <laughs> because of what we could bring to it, our, our various expertise, but it's really his brainchild that we uh, helped to... Um, um, come to fruition. So
4: in case it gets bad reviews, they're trying to slough it off on me. <laughs> 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 no but thanks for that, Kerry. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Alright. Um thank you for those those responses. Unless, yeah, we can find a question
0: or something.
1: Um I don't think so. Um, um so I, I I think that's a that's a nice way to to wrap this up. I I I think I I really appreciate some um, you all uh, uh sharing your your insights and um and indeed like your your, your sort of your, your personal histories and experiences with with regard um to um these various manifestations of um of hagiography and like nascent hagiography too. Um and uh I I I certainly enjoyed reading the book found it very enlightening um and um i i I hope that uh i I hope it will contribute to to uh further thought on, on on hagiography and just sort of start uh chiseling away at the sort of secular scientific um mindset um that we too often take for granted um so that uh Maybe there can be a renewed openness to the sorts of experiences of power and transformation that um, you all have been talking about. So uh, uh, thank you very much. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
3: Thank
4: you very much. I I thoroughly enjoyed it.
2: Thanks, Rico. Thanks, Rico.
4: Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Terry. You bet.
0: All right, that's been episode 2 of season 1 of Theology in Dialogue thank you for listening and thanks to you Luke thank you I've, uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation And we've enjoyed uh, putting this together I've had a lot of fun hanging out with you and we've got a lot more stuff to come uh, check in uh, about every other week we're aiming to release uh, another episode here uh, in a little while um, like us, share us Subscribe, um, tweet at us on our as-yet-non-existent <laughs> Twitter. Uh, but I will, I will make a Twitter. I will make a Twitter before <laughs> episode three, and I will share the handle with you all next time.